Well, I have about a half-hour sermon to preach this morning, and I have about 10 minutes in which to do it. So, we're going to leave a lot on the floor this morning. Uh, Also, it's about time to be done with the book of Revelation. We've been here since March, so we have four weeks to finish the book of Revelation. We're not going to come back to this next week, but if you want to talk about this anymore, I am so happy to do that with you this week because I did a lot more work than I'm going to be able to give to you today. Well, uh, let me remind you just briefly of where we are in the book of Revelation. We are finally at the end. God is bringing to a close all that has needed to happen in this world so that his new world can come and take its place. And we've been talking about Babylon. Now, it's been a few weeks because, you know, we were in Asia for two Sundays and there were all these complicated things going on. But uh, let me remind you just briefly that Babylon is an image, a symbol for the corrupt systems that govern the world. And here in chapter 18 in particular, we are seeing the, final, the finality of this corrupt system uh, coming to pass in one entity in particular. So there are two things we should understand. First, first is that uh, there are applications for us today because Babylon in spirit is operating today as scripture is describing her. But secondly, this is talking about a future event in which the entirety of all that's corrupt and broken in the power systems and economic systems and every system in the world and those who have profited by them and encouraged them along because of their profit will be judged. And that's a good thing. So there are several sections. There are really sort of uh, four main sections here. There's the pronouncement of judgment on Babylon and the certainty of it. There is the call to the church in light of all of this. There is the description of the mourning of the people who made their bed very literally with Babylon. And then there is the celebration in heaven. I'm going to take these a little bit out of order, and I'm just only going to barely touch on a couple of them for time reasons this morning. But first of all, what we see uh, really in the bulk of chapter 18, I should probably open in my Bible here, uh, is that the people who had allied with Babylon, who had benefited from her, the people who had made money in the corrupt systems in the world, the people who had gained power through the corrupt systems in the world, mourn the fall of those systems. It's important to understand, again, that Babylon is actually something, symbolizing something that's at work in every age, not just in one. It's every kingdom that raises itself up against the Lord Jesus Christ and says in itself, I am sufficient. Come to me and I will fix all of your problems. And if you're doing the math at home, here's what this means. Every time a politician comes up and says, if you elect me, I promise I will solve all of your problems, that's actually Babylon at work. Now, that doesn't mean that the governments we have are entirely bad. God tells us that there is so much that's wonderful about our government, so much so that Paul says to us with the authority of God himself in Romans 13, obey the governing authorities because they are created by God and put there for your good. And by the way, Paul says, they don't bear the sword for nothing. If they're bringing a sword against you, if they are punishing you, you probably ought to begin by saying, have I done something wrong here? Because that's the purpose of human authority in God's world is to restrain the worst excesses of evil. 
And yet we see the authority structures aren't immune to the excesses of evil either. So we're holding two things together here. We're not going to say with, with people on the far end of one spectrum that uh, all of the government is corrupt. There's nothing good about it. You know, it doesn't matter what time you live in or what's happening. You know, it's, it, the government is just the beast without any reservation or any qualification. The other thing we're not going to say is the government exists to solve all of our problems. We're going, to evo- we're going to, I hope, as Christians, avoid both sides of the spectrum because the Bible tells us government was never meant to do to solve everything. And it tells us, on the other hand, that government is not only evil all the time. We're going to try and find a sort of middle ground here that is the scriptural ground instead of the craziness that we often run into in these days. So, don't pigeonhole us this morning. Don't pigeonhole me. I'm just the messenger, okay? (laughs) But what we find is that God says, this is a problem and I need to do something about it. And so he says, I will destroy these power structures. And what happens is uh, the majority of chapter 18 is everyone mourning. There are actually three groups that are explained to be mourning. They're the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the sailors of the earth for some reason which we'll try and explain. But the kings of the earth mourn, because especially in John's day as he's writing this, Rome often created alliances. They said, if you will be subservient to us, we will give you power in your place. You have a choice. You can have power and influence where you are as long as you will serve Rome, or we'll send in the legions. And so there are many kings who either after the legions had come in were set up by Rome and they were pleased to do whatever Rome said as long as they got to stay in power. And then there were other kings. Herod the Great is actually someone you might consider here as we come up on the Christmas story, who said, if I just give my loyalty to whoever is in charge of Rome at the time, well, then I will benefit. So it doesn't matter if Rome's edicts are just or unjust. If I just do what Rome says things will go well with me. And people who tied up their fate with Rome, when Rome did fall, they lost as well, and they mourned. And they say things like, Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. It comes unexpectedly, all of the sudden. Uh, when I was younger, I was a banker, and I was interested in the world of finance. And I remember, you know, when I, I, I remember thinking one day, I want to try and put some money in the stock market. And I, uh, there's a bunch of advice out there on how you're supposed to do this, right? It, and Warren Buffett, for example, says, just put your money in the whole market. Because you, you can't, you're the best fund managers, the smartest people in the world, even they don't know when things are going to go up and down. Don't time the market. Just put your money into something that covers the whole market and, and forget that it's there. Don't worry about it. Then there's another uh, school of thought that says, do all of your research and pick the stocks that you think will earn you the most money. You know, this, this stock's undervalued, and I'm going to put my money in that, and it'll go up, and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so I thought, I actually remember telling my dad one day, you know, with my, like, $1,000 I had to invest as a banker, I said, Dad, you know, I, I, what I'm going to try and do, I'm going to try and, and, and buy when things are low and sell when they're high. And you know what I found out? I had no idea when things were low first of all. It's like, well, surely this is low. And then you buy something that falls further. That's a bummer. And you say, well, this is high. This is where I should sell, right? So I sold, and, but no, things went higher and I lost money. 
And that's a little bit like what God's going to do at the end. He's saying, if you're trying to time the end, if you're trying to get in all the good living apart from me that you can, apart from the end, then you're not going to do it. Because everything's going to look fine. People are going to be celebrating. People are going to be feasting. But all of a sudden, the system is going to change. And we see this all the time through history. This is how the French Revolution went. One day, Marie Antoinette, you know, uh, legendarily, she probably didn't actually say this, but as the people in Paris were starving, she's alleged to have said, well, let them eat cake. Because she had no idea what was about to come. Nobody did. Don't try and time your lives, he says. Live them now in light of the sure end instead of the uncertain present. The kings can't keep their power forever when it belongs to Babylon because she will fall in a day, in an hour. The merchants, I don't know if you picked it up, but it, uh, it says that the merchants uh, were making a living off of Babylon's luxuries, right? Her excesses, essentially. You know, they're, they're super yachts, Right? The Russian oligarchs have parked their super yachts all over the world. And, and Jeff Bezos and whoever else, they have these incredible, ostentatious, unbelievable pieces of wealth. And they're saying, it's those that were funding my life and funding my living. But how is it coming? This is actually where the sailors come in. See, what Rome did is they said, well, the wealthy people, they want to live as wealthy as possible. But the common people see that and they're unhappy. And, so, and they're also sometimes starving even as we feast. So what we're going to do is we are going to give away grain for free in Rome. And we can't grow enough grain in order to do that. But Egypt can and we conquered Egypt. So we're essentially just going to say, you have to pay us a huge tax in wheat every year, which they then brought to Rome and distributed to the people there to keep them happy with the bread and the circuses, if you've ever heard that saying. And they were using commerce, giving just enough to the people around them to sustain uh, the, the stability of the system that they were a part of. But really, they were driven by their lust for more and their lust for luxury. And the whole thing one day falls apart. Uh, This, again, is almost exactly what the French Revolution was supposedly about. The French Revolution's a very complicated and interesting thing. If you want some commentary on the French Revolution, you can read Charles Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities. If you want more modern commentary on the French Revolution, you can watch the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, which, believe it or not, is loosely based on A Tale of Two Cities. And there is actually a quote in that movie that I was thinking about this week where Catwoman... I can't believe I'm saying this. Catwoman speaks to Bruce Wayne as they're dancing at a charity ball, and she said, a storm is coming, and one day you will marvel that you thought you could live so large while leaving so little for the rest of us. And Babylon attempts to make that compromise. How do we give people just enough keep them happy so we can keep living our crazy rich lives. And that's not what the people of God are called to. Now, I wrote this entire service on purpose this morning, and if you remember all the way back to the beginning, what we said, remember we quoted Jesus, 
And Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures not on earth, because moth and rust destroy, but in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. And if you do that, if you live as heavenly-minded people instead of earthly-minded people, that's where your heart will be. You'll be satisfied. But not only this, when we start to value the rewards of heaven rather than the rewards of earth, the rewards of Babylon, heaven starts to appear on earth as well. People start looking at the heavenly-minded people and saying, there is something happening there. And I want to know about it. And I want to be part of it. That person, I remember when I was in high school, he took a mission trip to Mexicali, Mexico. And I'd never been out of, well, to a place like that before where there was so much poverty. And that's where we were aiming to go to serve. And I remember seeing all of the kids running around there and marveling that their smiles were bigger than mine. They had less than I did and yet they were more joyful, partly because they didn't have to lug all of their stuff down to Mexicali. Because <laughs> I can't live without this thing and that thing over there. I got this huge duffel. We had to buy a giant duffel bag to take all of our stuff because we're Americans. And frankly, we know more about Babylon and we live more in her orbit than we might like to admit. There are all these people who despair because they trusted and participated in Babylon and hoped that the, the current world order or the way they desired to change the world order would satisfy their longings. And what, yet what they find instead is, is injustice and a resulting judgment. And here's what God says, and man, I've just skipped like two-thirds of my sermon, but here's what God says to his church. How are we supposed to live in the midst of this? Then I heard another voice from heaven say, this is chapter 18, verse 4, come out of her, my people. I can just summarize it there. Come out of her, my people. See, it isn't enough to merely look around and say, maybe we can fix this system a little bit. Like, maybe we can put some window dressing on it. Maybe we can, maybe we can make it better. Maybe we can redeem it. Maybe we can win back the culture. Uh, if you've ever... Uh, ever been involved in a major renovation project, there comes a point where you say, this place can't be renovated. It has to be torn down and rebuilt entirely. And God says, that's what we need to do here. There are things I will redeem, but you guys are not in the business of going out and just trying to tweak here and there and make it better. We need to substitute out this system for something else entirely. And remember, I'm speaking the broadest of terms here, right? I don't have in mind, you know, uh, the idea of capitalism generally. I don't have in mind democracy generally. I don't have in mind critical race theory generally. I'm talking about any ideology that sets it up and says, this is the answer. This will solve all of our problems. Because if it's any ideology that doesn't begin and end with Jesus Christ is Lord, they're all a human attempt to make better what God has said needs to be recreated entirely. Jesus, when he died, became the new humanity. He had symbolized it before. He said, this is what it looks like to live as a real human being in a world where human beings have been corrupted and now they're just quasi-human beings. But then when he rose from the dead, he was different. 
He was like us. He had a body like ours in every way and yet transformed in every way as well. We don't get a whole lot of idea of exactly what that means other than maybe the clearest one is Jesus' disciples are all afraid. They're in, uh, inside an inner room with no windows. They lock the door so no one can get in because they're afraid that they've killed Jesus and we're next. And then Jesus appeared in the middle of their room. And, and it, the Bible doesn't say this, but the first question they must have asked was, how did you get in here? There's no way in. Jesus doesn't seem concerned. Jesus, as a matter of fact, says, I want you to know what I am and what I am not. I am not a ghost. I'm not just a spirit visiting you. Touch me. Another time he appeared and his disciples were like, we're still not sure what to make of this, this Jesus we're seeing. He's the same and different at the same time. And Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him something to eat and he ate it. Now, Personally, I'm really excited about that last one because it means that we get to keep eating in heaven, and I love that. <laughs> but secondly, it demonstrates he is the same, and yet he's different. He has been remade, and that's what our world needs to what our world needs today. We must come out. Let me tell you a story of uh, Lot and Sodom. This is all the way back in Genesis chapter 19. I, I'm going to read you a portion of the story because I know some of you out there, maybe you're not familiar with it. But in Genesis chapter 19, if I can ever get there, having all kinds of trouble. It says this. Two men who came uh, to Lot while he was living in Sodom and bad things happened, uh, and it was Sodom was revealed to be a really, really bad place, way, way worse than Las Vegas. And it said the men inside reached, well, they, they said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Is this your whole family here? Do you have sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to uh, you? Get them out now, because we are going to destroy this place. Look how bad it is. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. They wouldn't go. And I think we find out Lot didn't really believe it either because of what happens next. It says, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. But he hesitated. And when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. The story's not done. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives! Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, please! Your servant has found favor in your eyes because you dragged me out of the city when I didn't even want to go. And you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. And the angels grant his request, because this is what the two men are after all. But even then, Lot's hesitancy isn't over. It said, The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And Lot's wife looked back 
and she became a pillar of salt. Now let me tell you, God is not interested in punishing people for fun. God's not like, you know, I just, her attitude was really grating on me. Pillar of salt! <laughs> this is actually revealing what was in the heart of Lot's wife. I don't want to go. Because she was not really willing to come out of Babylon after all. Lot was barely willing to come out of Babylon after all. And because of his hesitancy, the story gets worse for him. He ends up in a cave in a very, very, probably the most R-rated portion of Scripture of all. Jesus is urging us, you must get out of Babylon. It is urgent. It is about to fall. In an hour, it will be done. You can have nothing to do with it. So how do we do it? Augustine said the command to fly out of the midst of Babylon should be understood spiritually in this sense, that by going forward in the living God, by the steps of faith, we must flee out of the city of this world. So he says, here's, here's what you do. He says, go forward in the living God. Don't go forward anymore in Babylon don't seek the success that Babylon counts success. Seek the success that God counts success. I love, uh, while we were in Korea, there was actually, they had a little sign up, and it was in English, which I was very grateful for, and it said, service, not success. That is going forward in Jesus Christ and not in the way of Babylon. He says, uh, go forward in Christ, in the living God, and do it by the steps of faith. See, that means that it's not always going to be clear why this is the right way. Sometimes Jesus is going to call us. I mean, basically all we're going to do is we're going to obey Jesus. We're going to follow where he went. And sometimes that's going to take us to places and we're going to say, God, I don't think I should be in this place. It feels like we've taken a wrong turn. And God's, you know, you're going to go back and you're going to search the scripture. You're going to have the whole witness of the Holy Spirit in you saying, nope, this is right. This is where I want you. And you're going to say, well, I don't understand. So what do we do then? Well, we, we, we go forward in the living God by the steps of faith. Say, I don't understand why I'm here, but I will keep going. Because I know who you are. I know you're good. I know you're leading me somewhere good, even though I can't see it now. Even though I may never see it until I meet you one day. I'm going to keep going. It's to practice the love of Jesus. Because Babylon says that our enemies must be defeated, and Jesus says they must be loved. Do you see that playing out at all in our society in these days? Your democracy only works, this is a little bit of Ian here, but democracy only works when we're willing to compromise. Is anyone willing to compromise these days? No. It's all we must win. We must win. Must win. That's the way of Babylon. I'm not saying let's go compromise on everything. What I am saying is that when that's our attitude, we must win instead of we must love. That's the way of Babylon. The way of Jesus, the way forward and out of Babylon is to love. Babylon says two opposites. People must take care of themselves, and then we must placate the people by taking care of them. But Jesus instead, the way of Jesus, holds us accountable to use our gifts to help each other. See the two things there? Babylon says, I will do it for you. And we say, no, 
you must use your gifts. Babylon says, you must do it for you so you will have. And we say, no, you must use your gifts so they will have. We have to learn and do the wisdom of Jesus. Um, uh, how many of you have a musical style you like to listen to? Everyone's hand should be up, right? You got some music that you like somewhere. Uh, I'm going to tell you, when George and I drive to Presbytery meetings, it takes just two or three hours to go, whenever I get into George's car, there is swing music. Big band, right? I think, yeah, this is literally 100 years old. That's awesome. It's not my style of music, but it's George's style of music, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing right or wrong with it. It's just, it's what he likes. It's, what's, it's what he identifies with. And, and if I played some of my music, George would probably say the same thing, right? George actually does listen to my style of music because he's nicer than me. And he lets me connect my phone. We listen to swing music. And then I'm like, George, can we listen to something else? Because I'm a bad Christian. And George says, yes, because he's a good Christian. And we do this. But here's, here's why I bring this up. Right? Taste in music changes from generation to generation, right? When you were growing up, you remember the music your parents listened to, and some of you were probably like, I, can we listen to anything else? And then you'd put on your music, and your parents would say, can we listen to anything else? And the wisdom of Babylon is the same. Where new ideas, new wisdom, new concepts, they keep coming and going. There's nothing stable about it. It's one thing today. It's another thing tomorrow. It'll be an entirely different thing in 30 years. And then in 40 years, we'll come back to the first thing for a bit. Then we'll do a new thing. The wisdom of Babylon is always changing. It is completely unreliable. But the wisdom of Jesus Christ never changes. It is permanent and rock solid. My parents used to have a sign hanging in our house that said, For the word of the Lord lasts forever. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Don't we need some forever wisdom to base our lives on? So don't get caught up in the fads. And finally, finally, if we must, if we must uh, practice the love of Jesus, we must learn and do the wisdom of Jesus. We must do it all boldly, for we are a city on a hill. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. He says all of these things. See, God could have judged Babylon already. Did you pick up on that? You ever think that? When you read the news the other day, you know, and you saw the latest atrocity in whatever place, Gaza, Israel, Ukraine, somewhere, there's a part of us that says, how long, Lord? How long? God could have judged Babylon already, but he hasn't. He has only restrained her worst excesses. Why? Because he desires you and I to live in this broken world as a light. And we can't be light if we are hiding. We hide when we agree that our faith should be a private thing. It isn't. It's the revelation of the deepest truth about the world that we live in. And Satan is doing his best to convince each and every one of us that we should be embarrassed and ashamed. When we, when we think, I want to, you know, ah, I, I, I know I should probably pray for this person right now or I should probably share the gospel with them and, and we feel that fear in our heart, that's not from God. 
That's from our own belonging to Babylon. That's from Satan's lies that he tells us. If we have the truth, if it's good news, why are we so afraid? Finally, see, I'm supposed to be done. Ian, stop it. But this is, we're we're right here. Got that left. It's okay. We hide when we compromise with Babylon to gain her acceptance and avoid conflict. We can't say we will never be controversial. Jesus doesn't leave that open to us. See, we don't seek to create conflict. We don't seek to do this. But we remember the ministry of Jesus Christ. Tell me, did Jesus, when he came by, could people take him or leave him? Or did people say either, you know, one of two things. Did they say, Jesus, I will follow you to the end of the earth. There's a moment where a bunch of people abandon Jesus and Jesus says to his 12 closest disciples, are you going to leave me too? They say, where are we going to go? It doesn't matter if we like you at the moment. You have the words of eternal life. We've got, I really need to be done, I guess. We, we, have to, we have to follow you. There's nowhere else to go. Or they said, how do we put him on a cross and kill him? I'm rooting for the first when we talk to folks and not the latter. But that's God's business. That's God's business, not mine. God is calling us. He's saying the present order of the world is passing away and you don't know when it'll be done. Don't belong to it. Don't join the mourning at her downfall. Don't join the celebration at her temporary success. Come out. Live fully into Jesus, not half-heartedly, not part way. That's the way of Lot. But come fully out and show the world the one hope that we have, and it's a good one too.